0: Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer.
1: I'm Larissa Whitaker.
0: And I'm Ben Clemmer. The conversation for this episode is going to focus on one particular, you could almost say growing genre of film. Hmm. We're going to be talking about sequels, a specific kind of sequel that has definitely popped up with more regularity in recent years, and you could also make an argument with more consistent quality, and that is the legacy sequel. There's a four-part definition, so kind of similar to when we were talking about gangster tropes a few episodes back and during our second season. If I may, I'll lead off by kind of defining the four elements of a legacy sequel, and then we can talk about some of the earliest ones that we have experience with or think we have experience with, and we can go there. Please explain
1: it it to me, Ben. I will have questions.
0: (laughs) So a legacy sequel, based on a definition I found on the internet, is a work that follows the continuity of the original work or works. So that's our first qualifier takes place further along the timeline. It is a sequel, not a prequel.
2: Mm.
0: That's our second qualifier. Our third qualifier is that it often focuses on new characters. And then fourth qualifier with the original ones still present in the plot. And as we were preparing for today, Caleb, I know you and I were texting back and forth, and one of the first questions was just, okay, well, what is the first legacy sequel we feel like we saw? I keep coming back to Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull.
1: I don't know the answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which is a completely acceptable answer. I mean, it's it's interesting to kind of dig that up and figure out, okay, what still qualifies, what's more of a reboot.
2: Yeah, I don't know that I remember what the first legacy sequel I saw was either. Within our timelines, you know, the age that we are, mm-hmm. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull probably a good candidate because that came out in 2008, but I definitely did not see that mm-hmm. for a couple years until after it had been out. Okay. Um
0: so I don't know. Because I remember seeing that one in theaters. And just to kind of give us a kind of a clear baseline, following the continuity of the original works, it does so, uh, picking up 20 years down the timeline uh, in the 1950s. It is focused on some new characters. You do have the presence of a new villain, a new offspring, new friends, new administrator at the university. You also have the original characters, of course, Indiana Jones himself, Mary and Ravenwood uh, making an appearance in the movie. So it does check all four of the boxes. We can certainly have a conversation about the quality of the movie overall. I think for many hardcore Indiana Jones fans, it was definitely viewed as kind of a drop-off compared to the fairly consistent first three. But overall, it does fit the definitions of what we're looking for as a legacy sequel. And in some ways, maybe even set the table for so many of the legacy sequels that would come later because there have been a lot of them in the last decade plus. This is slightly more recently in the past, Ben. First, the obvious spoiler warning is needed to a significant extent for Spider-Man No Way Home and the Star Wars sequels, and then to a lesser degree for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and Superman Returns. Now, back to further in the past, Ben, posing a question to Larissa. May I tie this back to our previous episode as well as the likely spotlight for this one? Yeah. You could maybe make the case, especially as we start looking into those, okay, if you're considering the original works, even cartoons, as the continuity. If we have the continuity of the original work taking place further along the timeline, focusing on some new characters, but with the original one still present in the plot, nope. I was obviously building up towards the live-action Scooby-Doo films. Again, it's that third qualifier. Yeah, there's no new characters. Yeah, the Uh, focusing on new characters. That is a consistent nope, we're looking at a reboot or some sort of other reincarnation. If the focus is still on the same characters that we associate with an original piece, it's not a legacy The
2: live-action Scooby-Doo is like three-fourths a legacy sequel. I think there's a
0: bunch of pieces that are th- are three out
2: of four.
1: I have a question about the legacy sequel criteria. Mm-hmm. Do you have to meet all four in order for it to count? Or is like three out of four?
0: I would say so, because that's that third one is important just because it does kind of meet out the the legacy portion of it. Because the work is kind of saying, Mm. that was then. We're looking back at the original characters and their significance as an era in the past. And we're centering our story on someone new in the story that we're telling for that particular piece. Because one movie Caleb, you and I were talking about was Superman Returns, uh, coming back to that. And just the fact that it does follow the continuity of the original work ish because it's kind of trying to retcon Superman 3 and 4 out of existence right it takes place further along the timeline but it's not really focusing on new characters the focus is still on Superman the focus is still on Lois Lane the focus is still on Lex Luthor Lex Luthor is still trying to pull off some sort of elaborate real estate scheme
2: probably then in that case the first legacy sequel that I can at least remember seeing was probably Tron Legacy which is ironic because I've never seen the original Tron I was a big fan of Olivia Wilde when I was a kid Mm because I watched House and she was on House and I was Mm -hmm. like, she's cute, I like her. And so she was in Tron Legacy and I was like, I'm gonna go watch that.
0: There's now a tie-in for a future Legacy sequels conversation that I cannot tell you about now, but I'm gonna leave that in so that it's in there for... Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, goodness.
1: So I have a question when we talk about our first legacy sequel that we encountered. Is there a difference for us as viewers between me being 13 years old and watching Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull, having not yet seen the previous Indiana Jones films versus being someone who has seen all the Spider-Man films and had the ritual of anticipation to see the legacy sequel release later, because I feel like that's a different viewing experience of knowing that this is something that's coming versus putting the pieces together in retrospect. So the question that I have for you guys, since I don't know how to answer the question about what the first legacy sequel is that I saw, because I'm not sure, is what is the first legacy sequel that you saw in the context of knowing that it was a legacy sequel or having this period of waiting in between time?
0: I would say for me, that's still kingdom of the crystal skull (laughs) because I mean, I, we had my brother on the podcast during season two. He was responsible for a lot of my first viewings of all sorts of pieces of media, whether it was Batman, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, Ghostbusters. We were watching the movies in the same room, maybe even on the same couch because of that connection as those franchises hold such a significant place in At that time, our shared household and now in our collective households uh, in my family, we were always kind of watching and wondering or waiting and seeing, Okay, what's the next iteration of this going to be? Because when I was a very small child, we got the Star Wars prequels. And then in 2005, we get Batman Begins and we get a, a solid reboot. And then not long after that, we get, okay, we've been watching and waiting. And here comes for the first time since 1989, a new Indiana Jones film. So the awareness was there. That is a fair point to make. What is the first legacy sequel you saw in film that just meets those criteria without also meeting a fifth criteria of you knew it was a legacy sequel going in and was familiar with the source material?
2: It was probably Creed for me because I grew up adoring the Rocky movies. I would pretend I was fighting along with Rocky <laughs> in Rocky 3 against Mr. T. That's awesome. Um, and I didn't I never watched like Rocky Five and six, or, but yeah, no. I remember when Creed was coming out, and I was like, "They're bringing this back!" Oh, because yeah, it was so much fun. Just that that whole energy of those boxing movies, and then yeah, having it focused on Michael B. Jordan, who I already knew and liked as an actor, I was even more excited to be like, "Ooh, I want to see what he can do in this universe."
1: My answer is Bill and Ted Face the Music. That's the first movie I can remember seeing while having a previous history with that media. I enjoy Bill and Ted (laughs) very much. And I think that there's something really heartwarming and genuine about the third. Ooh. Okay, for a second I started to doubt that it was a legacy sequel because it does still center on Bill and Ted, but their daughters also play a significant role in the story as if it's preparing to pass the mantle to them, though they are not the central characters in the plot. so maybe it's just a regular sequel. Hmm. I don't know, but regardless, I enjoy Bill and Ted, and that's my answer
2: well, I was gonna say they're not I mean they're definitely not legacy sequels because they're prequels, but I was gonna say the Hobbit movies was not a huge... where I thought you
1: were going <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: yeah and obviously they're not sequels, they're prequels, but like. Especially the last one, the Battle of the Five Armies, I remember because, you know, as far as anyone knew, that was going to be the last piece of Lord of the Rings media, you know, movies we were ever going to get. Now there's an Amazon TV show coming out and, you know, everyone keeps going back to these cash cows. But at the time, all my friends and my family who were into it, I remember like. It was the end. It was there wasn't going to be anymore, and that was like a big deal. When
0: you have Billy Boyd in the credits singing the last oh, goodbye, I cried. It has a strong. Motivation. I cried. Oh yeah, that's oh, such a beautiful song. It is just interesting to kind of see, and I and this is also secondhand, and also for my brother because he's twelve years older than me, and in the mid two thousands would have been following film news with access to the internet and knowing what all was going on, and. Early speculation even around something like Batman Begins was, okay, new Batman movie, cast a new actor to play the part, it's it's Christian Bale, villain's gonna be the Scarecrow, we haven't seen him on film yet. And to that point, every Batman film except for Killers Batman Murphy. Returns, oh he's so good, to that point every Batman film except for Batman Returns had recast Batman, and we had brought up new villains with every single story, so it's like, okay, this is this just a continuation, new version, whatever, but then it ends up being an amazing origin story and reboot and reset for the character in the franchise. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to kind of see, especially, I, I don't know why I keep coming back to Superman returns. Cause that there's so many films as we talk about legacy sequels that just kind of end up in these really strange categories. And that's one of them just because it's the whole, it's a legacy sequel that's simultaneously rebooting but trying so badly to connect more to the past than it is really
2: thinking about the future. Ooh. I want to posit a brand new genre. Okay. Instead of legacy sequels, the legacy prequels. Because the Hobbit is that,
0: and so are the Star the- Wars movies mm-hmm. are yeah.
2: that. Mm-hmm. There's probably others that I can't think of right now, but
1: Monsters University
2: is a legacy prequel. Once you, uh, <laughs> so again.
1: Uh, yeah, because it centers on Mike, Mike and Sully, yep. but it does introduce mm-hmm. other characters yep. like Art, who's my favorite in the whole wide world. <laughs> I think Art lives within my spirit. He comes out of the bedroom and he brings Mike and Sully dream journals and he gives this little speech about how he wants to laugh with them and cry with them and just be best buddies. Um, yep. Look at him. Oh, he's so cute.
2: Just cute little man. tiny
1: little arms.
2: Voice by Charlie Day. <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. I
1: can, I can, I can build a spaceship! (laughs) You're not gonna Uh. stop me?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Goodness. I enjoy
1: Charlie Day so much, but that, mm-hmm. that could be its own episode. Yes. What is it that we as an audience get out of a legacy sequel? And Ben, I think you were leading you were leading toward this, so maybe we're going on the same track of conversation. Mm-hmm. What is it that we as an audience get out of a legacy sequel that is different from having other entries in the same universe or having a true sequel to the original project? And what is the storyteller's responsibility? I don't know if responsibility is the right word in a, Continuing to fulfill fan expectations set by previous films versus being free to make something truly new.
0: I mean, I think so much of what we see that's popular these days is some form of remix. It's like, what's the next iteration of this property that already has an established fan base? And when you have something like, well, let's... Let's turn the conversation towards Star Wars because it's given us a lot of really strong examples of these.
1: Yeah, I got opinions.
0: Yeah. Well it's <laughs> it has like let's say the two anthology films, you could say one of those is a legacy prequel in solo.
2: Yeah. But then and it's Rogue One. Yeah. And, and
0: Rogue One maybe more so just because of that qualifier of where the focus is. Mm. Because we've seen Han as a lead character in the past. We were getting entirely new leads with Rogue One, a Star Wars story. So if we're considering the qualifier of, okay, we're going back on the timeline instead of forward, it's following the continuity of original works. Yes, it is. It's clearly set long after episode three and right before episode four. Takes place further back on the timeline, focusing on new characters with the original ones still present in the plot. And Arguably the most iconic scene in the movie features one of the original characters as Darth Vader tears his way through the rebels in the escaping ship at the end of the film. So yeah, Rogue One, Legacy prequel, absolutely. Again, I think as we run through those qualifiers, things will be pretty consistent. It's just that area of focus. That's the prime. That's the primary thing for me. Are we looking at this world through a different main character's eyes?
2: Right, and I think to what you were saying earlier, Larissa, it's you know they're drawing on that nostalgia to get you to come see this movie. It's a business. They want to make money from it. So it kind of becomes a managing expectations, you know, Mm. sort of tightrope walk. Um, You want to give them something familiar so that, you know, it still feels like it's that property they know and love, but you don't want to just do the same thing over and over again because then people will also get mad about that. I mean, people will get mad about anything these Mm -hmm. days, but... Yeah, you have to sort of walk that fine line.
1: I notice myself even as a fan feeling torn because part of me is apprehensive about having so many entries that feel the same as so many other entries. Like, I understand why and I'll still go see it. So I'm not saying that I'm on some higher moral ground. But I do wonder if, like, it's limiting what's possible to be shared in our cultural conversation. And maybe it's different overall, what with the pandemic and streaming But I feel like movies are a space where people come together around a set amount of time and a set event versus being something you consume on a rolling basis, like streaming content. And I think that there's a lot of space there to introduce new uh, cultural ideas or things that expand and help us reach differently.
0: I think that's a fair point to make. I mean, you made me think of Jane Martin and just I know there were a few times where I heard her say someone didn't get to make a movie. Yes. If there was yes. something else that ate up a lot of bandwidth or ate up a lot of budget. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, someone else with a different idea, maybe a new idea, their project was not going to see the light and of
2: day. And you can even look at creators like Del Toro because, yeah, he was like a very small scale creator. I mean, a lot of his first movies were you know, totally in Spanish, very much not for an American audience. And it's not until he gets that big exposure Through Hellboy, Pacific Rim, and then he was attached to the Hobbit movies but didn't end up doing them, that he finally gets to do something like Shape of Water and it becomes a big success. And yeah, it's a story that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. But I think it's... Part of why they keep going back to these same wells is you have that established, built-in audience.
1: Then you have to worry about not alienating that audience, which I think limits your freedom to talk about new themes or do Mm -hmm. interesting things with the characters. It's not to say that legacy sequels or these long-term sequels aren't interesting, but I feel like sometimes I get the sense as an audience member that some decisions are made out of fear and not out of hope for what could be next.
0: Everything that you guys just talked about, absolutely is a good setup for talking about the legacy sequels with the Star Wars films Mm. and shifting our focus from the anthology movies to episode seven, episode eight, episode nine. One piece, because I feel like this is probably, maybe even predates your entry on Bill and Ted, although Mm. you said Bill and Ted was your first time you were aware of it.
1: Yeah, I don't remember when I first watched Bill and Ted.
0: Okay. But in terms of first maybe that you would have seen in theaters...
1: Oh, are you trying to build up to Star Wars Episode 7, I'm 8, I like, feel
0: like Force Awakens might have been your first legacy <laughs> sequel experience. Possibly. No,
1: no, no. I didn't watch the Star Wars films until like two years ago when I <laughs> cut a deal with my brother where I was like, bro, I really want you to watch Mr. Robot. And he was like, why would I do that? And I was like, because I want you to. And so I was like, we made it. We set it up. He watched all of season four of Mr. Robot. We counted the hours. And I watched all nine entries in the Skywalker saga, and it ended up timing out to be about the same amount of content. And I knew going into it, I was hopeful, I was hopeful that we would both go in and we'd watch the show, and when it would be done, Nick would, Nick, my brother, would also enjoy Mr. Robot. But I knew in the back of my mind and what became actually true was that I went in hoping I would watch Star Wars and then be done with Star Wars, but I went in and I watched Star Wars and now I still care about Star Wars. (laughs) That's where things get so messy, because then is The Mandalorian, if it were a film, a legacy sequel, or is it a spinoff?
0: Continuity of the original works, yes. Takes place for down the timeline, yes. Focusing on new characters, yes. With the original ones still present in the plot, yes. Yep. Yes, it is. Well, and that's an area where, as we talk about a lot of these, you have, I mean, Jon Favreau's fingerprints on a lot of these elements, uh, either as a director and creator for The Mandalorian or as an actor for the Spider-Man films.
2: That's true. Yeah.
0: And when we have, although I do want to pull on a thread that uh, John just threw in our direction, because if we're talking about one galaxy-spanning epic and its many different interpretations, we should give some time to Star Trek as well as Star Wars. And... Do we have enough time? (laughs) Keeping it to the context of what's come out and what we would have seen kind of coming out of our childhood into our teens and into our adult lives... If I hadn't watched Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in 2008, Star Trek 09 would maybe be my first legacy sequel.
2: But that's a reboot. It's literally in canonical universe, a reboot. It's an alternate timeline. It is a different
0: timeline, but it also is establishing that Spock in the universe we know went through a portal, came into this other universe. He's an original character, but we're sent... Actually, nope. I'm going to once again disqualify it because it's not focusing on new characters. It is the same Mm. characters in a new That's a tricky little step right there. They should make that number one. But that is the the qualifier that's going to jump a lot of things from legacy sequel to reboot category. Mm
1: -hmm. Or regular sequel.
0: Yeah, absolutely. At this point, okay, we have talked about the anthology films. It's time to talk about The The Force Awakens. Yes, it is. Oh, goodness.
2: Well, I don't know what your guys' experience with it was, but I saw The Force Awakens in theaters. Um, I don't remember if it was opening weekend. It was pretty soon after it came out. With you know people my age and then my father and some of my father's friends. So, you know, very different generations. And everyone in my age group liked it. And my father and his friends all hated it.
1: That makes sense.
2: Hmm. Well, and there's just...
0: For me, it's one of those scenarios where... I was very excited to see the plane take off, but I lost some of my enthusiasm after it landed just with how the entirety of the trilogy played out. It lost some luster for me. Well, that's a different conversation. Yes, can You
2: can talk about it in terms of its own movie and then in terms of the three three Mm -hmm. that it's partnered with.
0: Yeah. And I also, I mean, at that point, i mean, a Star Wars fan since childhood. So different experience going in.
1: Can we each go around and share our just a quick summary on our Star Wars history, like when we first encountered it and what our relationship is? Because I think that having the context of how you first encountered Star Wars influences your response to the legacy sequels, if we count them as legacy sequels.
0: Well, I I think we do, but let's go down the line here. Continuity of the original works, yes, continuing the Skywalker saga, takes place further down the timeline, which it does focusing on new characters yes it does with the original one still present in the plot yes the it is a legacy trilogy
2: star wars was never like my favorite series or universe or whatever but i watched it since i was a kid and i watched them all the time as a kid i'm realizing now that i acted out what was on screen a lot as a child because i distinctly remember watching Empire Strikes Back, and pretending I was one of the rebel soldiers on Hoth, and like ducking behind my couch and like shooting as the AT-ATs <laughs> were walking towards the base. For a second there, I thought you were just gonna say it made snow days a lot more interesting. <laughs> well, yes, I mean we built tunnel systems in the snow, so yeah. pretty sure I saw Revenge of the Sith in theaters as a kid, because I still would have been pretty young when that came out. And I played, you know, the Star Wars Battlefront games and Knights of the Old Republic, so. I mean, I always loved Star Wars, but I was never... I don't think I was as big a fan of it as you were, Ben.
0: I got into it, I think, a little earlier. Was that with
1: your brother, Yes.
0: Oh, certainly. And at that point, though, it would have just been the original three. It would have been watching those films on VHS, playing with older Star Wars toys to the extent that that was an option. And then right as the prequels are getting ramped up to and... Lucas licensing, as we recall, our conversation with John Caulfield in our first season and just how much merchandise there is with Star Wars.
2: You know what? I played mm-hmm. a CD-ROM game that was, mm-hmm. it was based off of The Phantom Menace mm-hmm. and it was like a, like you control these pit droids. It was like a puzzle game oh my and you had to like send different colored pit droids to different areas to like solve the puzzle. That scratched an inch in my brain that I didn't know existed. Yeah. I mean, there were
0: so many different, I still have, I mean, episode one action figures from that time, and then started also getting into Lego Star Wars, because that also was hitting the shelves at that time. Like, I remember one of the first Lego sets I owned was the Desert Skiff with Luke and Han.
2: Did you ever play the the Lego Star Wars video games? Oh, yes.
0: Very, very often uh, at my friend David's house when we were growing up, and then later on with uh, my friend Logan as well. Oh, gosh. No, so it was a childhood staple. Then also at that point, the right age and arguably the target audience to an extent for the prequels. Because I would have been... That makes sense. I would have been five when episode one came out and then eight for Attack of the Clones and then 11 for Revenge of the Sith. And that was just the right age to be very into those. But also understanding that, yes, there's always an older age group that doesn't have a use for the wall-to-wall Jar Jar Binks or... George Lucas attempting to write romance dialogue or just the spectacular kind of drawing out of how much is going on in Revenge of the Sith. And it has its moments getting to experience the prequels as a kid, then set up for in my probably late tween years, early teen years. Uh, Cause I would put this up there as quite significant, at least for me was reading Timothy Zahn's Thrawn trilogy because for a lot of, yes, it is. Uh, Got to meet him, actually, at Comic-Con a few years back. He signed my copy of Heir to the Empire. And for many Star Wars fans, I think those books are viewed as Star Wars episodes 7, 8, and 9. They're set five years after Return of the Jedi. And we then found ourselves in a place once Disney bought Star Wars and they were going to start making new Star Wars films. We're way past when those stories would have been told. There's so much expanded universe continuity in the world of Star Wars. There are fans out there who, wherever Disney said they were going to set the film, like, oh, it's set 21 years after the events of Return of the Jedi. It's set 25 years. Like, whenever they were going to put it, there would be Star Wars fans who could tell you probably what's actually going on in the galaxy from whatever source material it would be, whether it be books or games or however that universe is expanded. There's so much media to Star Wars outside of the films. It's incredible. And, yeah, getting Steven in the room and doing an entire episode on that would be very easy. And so that made it so a lot of Star Wars fans who have consumed all that extra media had a probably a very clear idea in their minds of what they were hoping for or expecting with a sequel trilogy coming along, uh, starting with The Force Awakens in 2015. So there was a certain level of openness to an extent, but I would say there's also a level of such high expectations with that scenario that inevitably people were going to be somewhat disappointed.
1: You're trying to check too many boxes. <laughs> I feel like there's too many cooks in the kitchen when that happens. And that's part of where I get like, I get how it happens, and I'm not suggesting that I could do better. But I feel like sometimes with these legacy sequels, creators are trying to manage what they want to do, and what the audience wants, and what the studio wants. And you end up giving everybody a little piece of what they want and struggle to fully do anything.
0: Oh, yeah, movie by Kabidi is a disaster. I mean, there's... Well, and you saw that in the Star Wars sequels. Mm -hmm. Or in any of... We did an entire conversation talking about Warner Brothers with Lucas Gerke and just some of the different things that DC's done in the last decade and some change.
2: The Star Wars sequel trilogy is extremely reactionary to its audience. Ooh,
1: it's a good way to say that.
2: Because like you were saying, they're trying to tick all those boxes with Force Awakens in the first one. You know, we got to make people happy who loved the original Star Wars, so... It'll basically feel like the original Star Wars, but, you know, ooh, we'll have this new character, and they'll have new plot threads that are going somewhere, and you could do stuff with that.
0: And Harrison Ford will finally get the
2: call. And Harrison Ford will finally, you know, get killed like he wants, because we need him here, but the only way he'd come back is if we killed him, so, <laughs> all right, we'll do that. And so they did all that, but they, I mean, they made a ton of money, but they still was that...
1: Push and pull, this, like, yeah. indecisiveness. Yeah. Some people
2: liked it, some people didn't, and they wanted everybody to like it. So, we yeah. You
1: can't please everybody. You, oh, mm. Then well, they go to The Last that. Jedi. They make it movies forever.
2: Well, but it's also the
0: first set of Star Wars films to come out where the internet has been around for more than 12 years.
2: People can tweet, oh, I just saw this Star Wars movie. Yeah. Hated it. Emoji, it, emoji, emoji. We were
0: thinking about doing an episode just talking about internet backlash to projects when there was the whole controversy with Sonic.
2: Right.
1: So it wasn't until I had that experience of watching Star Wars, I was so sick when I watched it too. I had watched the first six on my own, then I was home for Christmas, and I was very sick. And Nick was like, you gotta you got to power through. <laughs> Episode nine comes out in two days, and we're going to see it. And I was like, whatever you say, man. And so I watched seven and eight in a haze. <laughs> and then I went to the theaters and watched nine. And then I went back and rewatched eight a few different times, because I was always drawn to that one the most.
2: I think it's the most interesting one. Out of mm. the sequels, because I did not like eight personally, but I didn't like the parts that I didn't like were not the parts that everyone else seemed to, to have issue with. Tell me more. Because I was fine with Luke being an angry old man who hates the world. I, that
1: also makes sense Most to me. grumpy
2: old men hate the world, in my opinion, or in my experience, I guess I should say. And I liked all the weird force stuff with Kylo and Ray. Basically, all of the stuff related to the Force I was interested in, I didn't care a whit about any of the other characters and what they were doing in that movie. Which is part of the
0: problem with legacy sequels, because if you have older characters that are so iconic as Mm. Han, Luke, and Leia are, they're going to take up the focus. And your narrative, along with your audience, is going to wind up not caring about those new characters as much. Yes. And I would say that's true for all three of those movies. As soon as we see Han and Chewie, as soon as we are spending
2: time with Luke. Mostly because they didn't do much with the new characters. I, I mean, think Finn that has... they're
1: trying to do too many things. They are. It's mm-hmm. like, you who can make a movie that's about these two completely different timelines cohesively at the same time and make it compelling and pleasing to everybody who's in those separate camps? See, the trick is Can't you got to have
2: three separate timelines.
1: Goodness. You make 12 Star Wars movies. <laughs>
2: The search for more money. I think that's
0: the second time I've said this on this podcast. Anyway. Oh, probably. Always come back to Mel Brooks. No, the... Well, that's... This is one aspect of a a legacy sequel that's kind of inherent to it, is you're going to have some sort of time jump. And how much time do you need to spend giving your audience the context of your world? That, for me, was my biggest issue with the Star Wars sequels, Mm. because... So much was changed about where we expected Han, Luke, and Leia to be that the only way they could spend enough time telling a satisfying story of what happened there was to take away time from the new characters. They needed to leave the victory and return of the Jedi more complete and put those characters where we largely expect them to be. Otherwise, they were going to be pulling so much time away from them to tell the stories of Rey, Poe, and Finn because we then have to spend so much time with Han, Luke, and Leia and figuring out everything that went wrong and with the, the story of Kylo Ren and Ben Solo. I mean, there's we lose the time we could have spent with the newer characters in the film. That's a difficult balancing act. I would argue those legacy sequels for Star Wars didn't really pull it off well. Other legacy sequels have done a phenomenal job with that balance.
2: Creed does that really well, where it you know gets you invested in new characters but brings the old characters back in like an interesting and realistic way.
1: In episode eight, there were a couple different elements that I was drawn to, but my personal taste is stories that have a cohesive theme and stories with goofy elements told with complete sincerity. And there's a scene that even in my haze stood out to me in episode eight, and I can only kind of paraphrase what happened. So please correct me if I'm wrong. But it's when Luke is looking at that tree full of Jedi knowledge and Yoda appears. And I love Yoda. Yoda gives me the same vibes as Danny DeVito and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia <laughs> in ways that I really enjoy. <laughs> like I, I can see that. I've drawn to it. I still disagree with Yoda on some things, but that's not what this conversation is about. I think he is an interesting way of delivering what it is he has to say. When Yoda and Luke are looking at the tree and... Yoda says something to Luke to the effect of that he's looking toward the horizon instead of being in the present moment with what's available to him. And I just think that that's a message that I gravitate toward and I think is unique to share in the context of that story. And that's all I have to say about that.
0: While Kingdom of the Crystal Skull has its flaws, the Star Wars sequel trilogy will likely remain divisive for quite some time, but in no way home we saw something that i think spider-man fans of all ages were on board with and saw it also hit one of those categories kind of unique similar to superman returns it's simultaneously an amazing legacy sequel and a phenomenal third film in a trilogy
1: i think that spider-man no way home is also uniquely positioned to do that effectively because Tom Holland's Spider-Man doesn't really get an origin story. So it has that movie to play around and be an origin story while the audience already has familiarity with the character.
2: Yeah, that's my take on Tom Holland's whole trilogy of movies is the entire thing is an origin story because Mm. by the end, he is the regular Peter Parker that we know. He has a crappy apartment in downtown New York, he doesn't have any friends. He's kind of a loser. He's mourning the death of a loved one, and he has, I assume, you know, he'll start working for the Daily Bugle, taking pictures of himself, because he always does that. Ah, uh, uh, they very much changed that in the universe,
0: given what this they did more with- more related to the- Yeah.
1: This is like a conversation on media. Uh-huh.
0: Yes, it like, is. Like, that version of J. Jonah Jameson is very clearly based on Alex Jones. Uh, yeah. A completely different scenario. And, and realistically, because, I mean- and granted, this is speaking as guy who works in newsroom, that Clark Kent is a reporter, Peter Parker as the photographer, is becoming less and less common. Uh, the, the secret identities of the, the 40s and the 60s don't land quite as well in the 21st century. You have to update the jobs a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see what, yeah. What Peter Parker does, does is, for a living. Like, yeah, he, absolutely. That's an
1: interesting question. What if he's a TikToker?
2: Oh, dear God. <laughs> I mean, yeah.
1: yeah. He manages Spider-Man's social media profiles and presence.
2: <laughs> Dang, a TikTok dance the on Scatter- the top of the Empire to- State <laughs> Building. Oh. Millions of which followers.
1: It feels so pandering uh, and limited so completely to the time in which it was released. Kevin Feige,
0: please don't take notes. <laughs> or do. I
2: need a credit at the, left, at the bottom.
0: <laughs> oh, my word. So we did an entire episode on Spider-Man in our first season with how to make movies the Marvel Comics way and our conversation with Autumn about Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse. Now we get the opportunity to talk about No Way Home, but I think at this point we can kind of come back and maybe tell a little bit more about our history with Spider-Man because I don't think we even necessarily did that when we had the conversation with Autumn. I think we were very much focused on talking about what made into the spider-verse so amazing and didn't necessarily dig back into
2: the other films. I watched one of the Spider-Man cartoons when I was a kid in the 90s. I could not tell you which one it was because there's been so many. But yeah, I watched the the Toby movies, I watched the Andrew Garfield movies, and then they were part of the MCU, so I watched the Tom Holland movies. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: <laughs> this is one of those areas where as I'm telling a story, I might not name a name. I had a friend in junior high who, as a result of his vested interest in Spider-Man, anytime time we were constantly going back and forth about whether or not Batman or Spider-Man is better, and it was just so unbelievably stupid.
1: Ben, I had the exact same thing with a friend in high school about whether Iron Man or Batman was better, and I liked Iron Man more. That's uh, my whole story.
0: Okay. Well, <laughs> the... Speaking as the Batman fan who did not really care for for, Spider-Man, because here's the thing, No Way Home obviously is the most recent Spider-Man film I've seen in theaters. The last Spider-Man film I saw in theaters before that was Spider-Man 3, which coincidentally came out when I was in junior high. So I really didn't have a vested interest in the character mm. after having those constant back and forths because it's like, can I please just talk about a character I'm interested in without hearing about how yours is better for That's once. That's
1: unfortunate, Ben, yeah. because I think that there's something about the Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man energy in Spider-Man 3 that would, and I don't know this, I've never been a middle school boy but I feel like I would connect with it if I were in that situation.
2: (laughs) Yes, you are correct. You are correct. (laughs) The Batman fan in me at the time
0: got to be very smug because it was then followed by the Dark Knights. I mean, granted, DC and Marvel's ground has shifted so much since then.
2: When you're a middle school boy and you think his haircut and that is kind of cool because it's edgy and emo. (laughs) That
0: very much made it so I just didn't have a vested interest in the characters. Did not see the Amazing Spider-Man films when they came out. Didn't see either of the first two Holland films in theaters. Didn't see Spider-Verse in theaters. Then found out later, as it's like, oh, okay. Like I found myself kind of enjoying Holland's take on the character. First exposure for me being Civil War. Of course, that was the first exposure for everybody. Mm-hmm. And then going back later and watching those films, uh, actually on a very recent MCU rewatch with my wife, and going back and exploring Spider-Verse, not too much before we did the episode on it.
1: I don't really remember having much of any media relationship with the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films. I remember my brother loved them.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember too, made me feel icky. I don't know what as a child, but I was like, this, that, this doesn't feel good. Maybe like Doc Act, but like emotionally, the tension in that story—that's not what my. There's point a lot
2: is. of uh, like interpersonal drama between Peter and Harry. The, that that
1: and like there's this. It's the same thing in Back to the Future Part Two. Where there's this constant delay of gratification and this perpetual suffering because the protagonist is trying so hard to do what it is he needs to do and he can't, he can't, he can't do it. But that's Mm. not the point of what it is I have to share here. My relationship with Spider-Man, I would say, started most with the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man films. And I don't remember when I first watched them, but I remember re-watching them quite a lot. And the second one broke me. I watched it. I was sad for three days. And then I was just upset. I don't think I'd seen a movie before. Because I I just don't watch... If a movie is sad, I would have avoided it at that time. And I I think I was just genuinely surprised to see the hero fail in that way. And it stuck with me.
2: I think it, it hurts more in that movie, too, because... When they were filming, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone were a real life couple. You can see that chemistry on screen. Which, I mean, it's so much more believable than like a lot of other movie couples. And mm. then, you know, when she dies, it's like, oh, God, it's heartbreaking. Yeah.
0: Oh, my goodness. But then it also, I mean, as we're talking about No Way Home here, it sets up for a spectacular payoff when we get to MJ
2: falling. I mean, yes, and yeah. he gets closure. Her. Yeah. It, it, he doesn't use the web this time. He he. Body catches her. He learned his lesson. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in two, he shoots the web and it's like a little hand like reaching out to get her.
0: There's so many amazing layers to No Way Home in that we get a Daredevil cameo for fans of the Netflix show. We get the villains brought back in spectacular fashion from all of the films to this point. And then we get... The two Spider Men. Yeah, I just I don't think they could have done a better job hitting all of those beats. And at this point, Marvel has shown their they've got a pretty consistent track record on that stuff. As maybe the the non Spider Man fan in the room, like it, it hit different, but it was still wonderful. It's just like, ah, huh, there's Toby for the first time since 2007. It was just yeah, it, it was, was cool. it
2: was very cool to see Toby again. It was a little weird because he's old man Toby now. So, <laughs> and I was sad he never called Green Goblin Gobby. That's my one complaint about the film.
0: Let's consider for a moment our, our criteria and just to mm-hmm. what extent Noah uh-huh. Home kind of knocks it out of the park. Following the continuity of the original work, it is continuing directly after Holland's Spider Man's secret identity has been spilled at the end of Far From Home. And we're also getting the villains at the moments right before they died. And so it's kind of pulling, yep, here's where this guy was. Here's where this guy was and pulling them all into the universe. And we can kind of, at that point, Oh, it's the last time we saw them. The audience knows. Well, exactly and it where those continues
2: the story of the other two Spider-Man as well. Cause yes, they have that conversation where Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man talks about how he was super angry and upset after Gwen Stacy died. Never really got over that, but like got to a point where he could function after that. Mm-hmm. So clearly some amount of time has passed. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And you can tell that, uh, Peter's relationship with Mary Jane in the verse is complicated, but...
1: But repaired. mm
0: -hmm. They do a great job of progressing the continuity, taking place further along on the timeline for everybody. And it's simultaneously doing an amazing job presenting all of those characters that we've seen from those films and giving all of them their moments while still focusing on the new characters because it's also probably the strongest performance we've gotten from Holland and Zendaya to this point, getting to the cast of the MCU Spider-Man films, they got more to do in this and at least emotionally. And mm-hmm. yeah, they did were given such an amazing of, job with
2: that. A lot of meat to handle with that script. Yes.
0: Mm-hmm. We simultaneously introduced Green Goblin into the MCU and make him one of the MCU's greatest villains. Just with completely blowing up the plan to rehabilitate and, and save the villains to killing Aunt May and just the, the final battle with him. And it's, it's and once again, Willem Dafoe getting to chew the scenery and go back and forth between just guilt-ridden Norman trying to come to grips with everything that's going on around him and the goblin who is just wanting to kill everything in his path.
1: To tie our conversation toward looking for what it is a legacy sequel is doing that rewards the audience or what it feels owed to its audience, like, do, do we think that Spider-Man No Way Home is effective because it chose... To honor the expectations its audience had for who Spider-Man is and what his story is and did that effectively. Because I don't think that it really tries new things with the Spider-Man story. And I don't think it has to, but it is fully itself in being... Spider-Man again, the same story beats of who Peter Parker is and what forms that identity, but told differently enough with this other icing and decoration on top that the story underneath is still fundamentally the same. And is that part of why we like it so much?
2: I think so. I I remember saying this to friends before it came out where, you know, the trailer came out and, okay, we knew Doc Ock was in it, so we knew they were bringing some of the old villains back, but they hadn't released any official material saying that, You know, Toby or Andrew Garfield was going to be in it. And I remember saying to friends of mine where I was like, well, they have to be in it at this point because if they're not, people will absolutely hate the movie no matter what. So I think it it did do a good job of building its expectations to like a fever pitch almost. I mean, people were chomping at the bit for this movie to come out and then it did pay that off successfully. So, I mean, that right there is just your recipe for success.
0: The only note I would add to that is just you're going to find success with your character-driven stories by
2: digging inward.
0: I mean, there's a reason I think a lot of people consider the second Spider-Man film to be the strongest of uh, of Maguire's entries because he has an existential crisis because that movie does very much look inward and tell an emotional journey better than the film that preceded it or followed it.
1: Do you think that it's a thematic coherence that makes the story work? Like, there's this uh, continued emotional resonance, and that's why— Okay. I think that we're the target audience for Spider-Man No Way Home, right? Like, the people they're trying to make happy are the ones who grew up with Tobey Maguire, then saw Andrew Garfield, and now are getting this. And I'm curious to know, and we can't really, unless you know anybody who fits this demographic, like, people who are children now and first encounter the Tom Holland as their Spider-Man, like, what their relationship to this film is like. Because I know that I feel completely appeased and happy and like deeply joyous in watching Spider-Man No Way Home because I have all the years of experience coming toward this story. But I wonder, and maybe, it, I don't know. I'm not, I'd have no underlying point. I just have the question.
0: Well, and that's where, because we've seen so many legacy sequels to this point and we've seen different degrees of success, it's understanding what the anticipation is and if not rewarding it per se, rising to the occasion to meet it or beat it because there was decades of anticipation leading up to a fourth Indiana Jones film, decades of anticipation leading up to a seventh star Wars film. And we didn't have quite as much, the same amount of time leading up to a Spider-Man entry to bring back Garfield or McGuire. But there was an understanding of, Hey, if we do this, especially post spider verse, because we now have not one, but two phenomenal movies that showcase Spider-Man team-ups, they knew what they had to pull off to meet audience expectations and to exceed them. It just did that so well on so many levels. Well, and
2: that's interesting, too, because with legacy sequels, you're managing different generational expectations as well. I mean, like the Star Wars ones, for example. You know, my father grew up watching the original trilogy, I grew up watching the prequel trilogy in addition to the original trilogy.
1: And then you're trying to market to the people who are kids now.
2: But yeah, you can, I mean, you see videos of people at Disney World, and it's, you know, all these children who are dressed up as Kylo Ren or Ray or whoever because those are the characters that they love because they're the ones who were around and prevalent when they were kids.
0: No Way Home also benefited from the fact that it was the third film of a trilogy and it was all directed by the same director. John Watts got to start it with Homecoming and land the plane. With No Way Home and did an amazing job.
1: I think, even in addition to that, Ben, the way you talked about, there's a distinction that I think we're drawing here that I want to make explicit. That legacy sequels we discussed so far, like Indiana Jones and like Star Wars, do have those generational items to manage. And I think Spider Man was uniquely positioned to be successful in honoring fan expectations as a legacy sequel because we're all so deeply familiar not just with the spider-man character but with what story beats a spider-man origin story contains so much so that they're explicitly played with and so having the opportunity for tom holland's origin story if we pick it as one film instead of as building through several films to hit those elements knowing that that's that fan expectation gives the story the space to breathe and move in other ways that get to play with the Andrew Garfield and Tomy McGuire Spider-Man coming in. Does that make sense?
2: No, it does. I mean, yeah, because it hits Spider-Man's origin story, you know. He gains his powers and then loses a parental figure, goes down that path of maybe he's choosing darker violence, and then either through his own will or through someone else's is drawn back to, you know, the righteous path. And yeah, that's definitely played out in No Way Home. Partially through the last words of Aunt May, and then partially through, he gets that mentorship from his other two alternate versions that say, you know, we've been here before, this is how you should handle it.
0: McGuire stopping the glider, and you just, that was such a powerful moment. It's like, I've been where you are, and I I know exactly why
2: you want to do this, and I know why you can't. And they don't even have to say anything in that scene, nope. because like you said, they've built up that whole...
1: They you know, know that sequence. you've seen all of them. They yes. know that you know how this goes, and or, that works in their benefit.
0: Or even if you didn't see all of them, you're going to understand what the significance is and appreciate it.
1: I think so. I think that there's something special, though, in having that media history. Because the spy- the story of Spider-Man is so pervasive in our culture. I don't know. I'm going to have to find some people who don't watch superhero movies, and I'm going to ask them that question and report back. I'll ask my but sister. If they know what the story of Spider-Man is.
0: Mm hmm. Well, and that's where this is a reboot, not a legacy sequel. But I immensely enjoyed the Batman. And that was partially because it didn't feel the need to go back and retread things that we've seen before, like the death of Bruce's parents and other elements mm-hmm. that we we associate with first Batman film in a run, whether it be Batman 89 or Batman Begins or heck, we saw it again at the beginning of Batman v. Superman. I mean, anytime you're introducing the character, that seems to pop up, but it didn't need to because, yes, after a certain point, it's baked in and you can find different ways to reinterpret it. I love Marissa Tomei and her portrayal of Aunt May in the MCU Spider-Man films, but it was a very well done twist of the story for her to die in No Way Home instead of having an Uncle Ben character. Mm. I still love the meme that because of the movie My Cousin Vinny shows that until they show an MCU Uncle Ben in my head, he's played by Joe Pesci. (laughs) (laughs) Those two are a couple in My Cousin Vinny and it works so well.
1: With the way that Spider-Man No Way Home plays on our shared knowledge of what the spider-man origin story is and not just that but the other entries in the spider-verse over the last 20 years do you wonder if this is going to be a big movie for fans who are fans right now or do you think this movie has the power to be culturally relevant over the next decades if it requires such a level of research and knowledge in order to ha- for it to have the impact it does. Because I think it can still stand on its own if you're not a big fan of Spider-Man and watch it. But I don't think that it has the power for the average, like, inexperienced Spider-Man viewer as it does for someone who is deeply familiar with what's happening here.
2: I think it's a stepping stone. Mm. I think Infinity War and Endgame were, like, the first couple stones, and this is the next step in that. Um, and then... Whatever the next Doctor Strange movie is will probably be the next stepping stone from that to where Disney and other studios are realizing they can have these massive cinematic universes and they can play with them and reshape them and bring in alternate versions and reboots and stuff like that. And people will eat it up because No Way Home is the most successful superhero movie ever, right? money wise close to it
1: really it's
2: yeah. made a incredible amount of money which so i didn't maybe
1: it will have cultural staying. Power i think it i think it, our time it
2: very well will because i think it's you know it's shown that that kind of story can be successful not just successful but like uber successful
0: real quick top six highest grossing movies of all time avatar avengers end game titanic force awakens infinity war No Way Home. It almost
1: makes me uncomfy, even though it makes complete sense that so many of those are franchise sequels. It makes complete sense that that's the case.
2: Aside from Avatar. Avatar is the one. And Titanic. When it comes to the impact of
0: legacy sequels, because we're seeing so many of them, it was just fascinating to watch a movie like No Way Home simultaneously be like a, I don't even know where it's at in the number order. It's 20 something in MCU, not in Watch Order per se. Oh, but, but in, like when they came yeah. out. And it's also an eighth film because we've had these seven preceding live action Spider-Man films. It's also an MCU film. And it answered the one of the biggest criticisms of the Holland Spider-Man in that he felt like he was in Iron Man's shadow. And his villains were Iron Man's villains, not his. Just with the way they tied Vulture and Mysterio into those stories. And it somehow manages to be an amazing eighth film, an amazing whatever film it is in the MCU running order, (laughs) an amazing first film in setup for where they're going to take Spider-Man from here, it walks all of those lines in kind of this perfect nexus moment that I don't think they're going to try to do again, even with Multiverse of Madness.
2: I think the biggest cultural impact it'll have is that it showed studios that their blockbuster audiences are smart. Because they can comprehend all that. They can comprehend that these are different versions of the characters coming from multiple realities. The audience is willing to put the work in. They're willing to watch the eight. I mean, arguably, you have to watch like most of the MCU and all the other Spider Man movies to really get everything in No Way Home. So that's what, like 20 some movies? But mm-hmm. people will do that to experience, you know, the big cultural the event. The
1: catharsis of like. Yeah. If that's the right way to use that word.
2: Yeah, because it's, it's that fan service catharsis payoff from seeing all these crazy things on screen you never thought you'd see before
1: I know for myself like in the days after seeing Spider-Man No Way Home I was just sort of stunned where I was like did I really just see the movie that I saw because I daydreamed about this happening and I always kind of thought it would be impossible and it's still weird that it actually happened that's
2: how I felt about Infinity War Mm -hmm. after I saw Infinity War for the first time I was like did they really they did it and it was good it wasn't terrible Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Because there were ways in which it felt like maybe Age of Ultron was a step down in some ways from the first Avengers film. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to beat the first time you see all the Avengers on screen together, but I mean, the, all of those films have been so consistent. I mean, again, that's where, again, even speaking of the DC guy, I have such an admiration for just how consistently strong Marvel is able to be. And there are so many wonderful little moments for if you're a fan of the characters and have been for a while, like getting to see Doc Ock come back to reality and be able to have a wonderful conversation with, the McGuire Spider-Man and just, how are you dear boy? And, and, and their whole interaction was just wonderful. And then in the context of who is involved, we cannot give enough praise to John Favreau because without him doing the first two Iron Man films, we don't have an MCU. And after Aunt May has died, after Spider-Man's getting surrounded by police in the end of the second act, I mean, yes, the other two Spider-Men show up and help him to process his emotions and help to start game planning for the final battle against the villains but Happy Hogan is the one who gets in the way of the cops and gets himself arrested just so Holland Spider-Man can get out of there and gets one more hero moment. I mean, there's just so many ways in which it hits all of the right beats and uses <laughs> both of the original Spider-Man and their villains to such great effect. It's like asking about McGuire's suit. It's like, So you're gonna fight these guys just uh, dressed as a cool youth pastor?
1: That's one of my favorite lines in the entire film. It is just, it's just the perfect descriptor for what Tobey Maguire's Spider Man looks like.
2: Or when they're like, it comes out of you. (laughs) Good God.
0: It's like, you can't do that? No, I can't do that. So it might be obvious at this point that a conversation about legacy sequels, with how many there are and how many different just layers they have, it's fairly apparent a conversation about legacy sequels needs a sequel probably not a legacy sequel i could see us doing too this many in like criteria. two months and <laughs> we have a goal as a team and hopefully saying saying this on the podcast we'll get it accomplished because we have a bunch of legacy sequels that we kind of collectively want to see but some of us haven't seen them mm-hmm. whether uh that be creed or blade runner 2049 or, or
1: bill and ted face the music
0: yes or jumanji or ghostbusters afterlife we're gonna spend the next few weeks or better part of a month at least going around having movie nights and making it so that everyone has seen all these and then we'll come back and have another conversation about legacy sequels. There's a lot of layers that we've been able to unpack courtesy of being yet another <laughs> pop culture entity taking a shot at the Star Wars sequels as well as acknowledging there's so much that No Way Home does really well but there's also a lot because of how much it is in in and of itself, like the way that it is, like almost simultaneously two to three movies at once in a good way. Mm-hmm. It's more than just the traditional legacy sequel.
2: And we're going to spend some time unpacking more traditional legacy sequels. I think we should start the next episode with other hosts. And then we come in halfway through. (laughs) So it's focusing on different characters. But the old ones come back.
0: (laughs) John, would you and Steven be open to hosting the next episode at the beginning? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i refuse to be a plot device a hungry
2: feeling oh. came or me stealing and the mice were squealing in my prison cell And the Old Triangle
0: in the morning The the screw was peeping
2: as I lay
1: to join us for the recording of this episode's main section but you just heard him and a dozen or so of our friends for the ragtag bunch live at the tiger room that track was the old triangle Brittany smith is today's guest britney and i first connected through creative mornings and have now reconnected based on our shared appreciation of the live action scooby-doo films Brittany, there's something I'm curious about when it comes to the media we consumed as children and how we see that playing into our lives as adults. But before we dive into all that, can you tell me more about your relationship with Scooby-Doo and how it's brought you here today? (laughs) Yeah so when
3: i read your post on uh the website about scooby-doo your breakdown of it it brought me back to some of my childhood memories so i thought scooby-doo was a great topic for the two of us in my childhood it was i watched the animated cartoon series a lot like it was a saturday morning cartoon it was something my dad was really into Mm. it was a, a cartoon he had always watched he introduced me to it and then we started watching it and then when I was really young, the live action movies came out and those were a big part of my childhood. I had both of them on VHS. I had the the soundtracks on CDs and would watch them the VHS over and over again.
1: I love like how uh, much that kind of captures what specifically our generation is that you can reference that you had VHS tapes and <laughs> CDs because that must be such a narrow window of time. Yeah. I had a a few, like, collectible items that I, like, it was
3: something that you would often find in my childhood bedroom. We took a road trip to Orlando to visit the Disney Parks and the Universal Park. And my dad, on the way down, as we're driving down there, was very adamant that we'd be returning with zero stuffed animals in tow. (laughs) Uh, I was a collector of all sorts (laughs) of stuffed animals. And I walked out of Universal with probably the largest Scooby-Doo you could find there. I don't know how I conned my way into getting that one, but I still have it to this day. It's still in my childhood home. I would carry it around with me as a kid. So it wasn't something I just took and left in my room. I took it all over the house with me. I would drag it around by the tail. I would sleep with it in bed with me at night. So that's a, a beloved thing. For Christmas every year, it's our family tradition to go pick out ornaments at the Hallmark store, try to pick something that was our favorite that year or something that was special to us. About half of my ornaments are Scooby-Doo related, so my Christmas tree as an adult now is a bunch of Scooby-Doo ornaments, so that's That's, really cool.
1: That's so awesome, and it makes a lot of sense too. I could see how that makes your Christmas tree extra special if you have this connection with your family and with your dad that is sort of what this relationship with the media of Scooby-Doo is built around. And now I I also have some Scooby-Doo ornaments on my tree. Yes. yes. Um, They're so fun. They are. They just brighten things up. They're
3: awesome. I was really in love with the ones that you could hit the button and make a sound. (gasps) So then I'd get a bunch of
1: Scooby-Doo phrases so you can... Hit a bunch of them, and they'll all say different Scooby-Doo things. Have a little conversation, Uh of course, the (laughs) Scooby-Doo's. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you remember any favorite Scooby-Doo movies? Or I know you mentioned the live-action ones. Are those the ones that stand out to you the most? Uh, Definitely. When I think of Scooby-Doo, I think of the live-action movies mostly. Specifically the second
3: one, the plot, and the characters that I think of.
1: It's so charming. And I, I have a lot of opinions on the live-action Scooby-Doo films. For those of you who are frequent followers of the blog or podcast, um, you may know that I got a lot to say about my opinions (laughs) on the first versus the second. But, Brittany, I will give you the opportunity. What is it that you like about the second live-action Scooby-Doo? And do you have anything to say about the two of them in general? I think
3: when I was younger, I preferred the second one because the monsters in the first one, the little, like, The purple scary demon men. Yeah, whatever those are. Gross. Horrifying. Yes. Things of My Nightmares, I think that's, you referenced that in your mm-hmm. blog post, definitely gave me nightmares. <laughs> so I think I probably preferred to stay away from that one when I was younger, um, to get away from those. <laughs> but I think the second movie, I enjoy the monsters in that movie a little bit more. And I think the the humor and the comedy and the storyline throughout the second movie is just a whole lot better.
1: It is, is much easier to digest than the first one, for sure. I think it's a lot sweeter. And it touches on a lot of the things that I enjoy so much about so many of the Scooby-Doo cartoons. Because when I think about some of my favorite animated Scooby-Doo movies, and my memory is not, we're relying on like six-year-old Larissa communicating effectively to 25-year-old Larissa, and I'm sure something got lost along the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember really being into the Cyber Chase one. He was also scary. Do you see if there are any ways, and I know, so you said you watched both the live-action Scooby-Doo films today. Yes. (laughs) Totally, two totally different stories. Absolutely. Do you have any hot takes on the first live-action (laughs) Scooby-Doo film? Your blog
3: post was that Daphne didn't get what she deserved in that first one.
1: The first one has some challenges for me. Absolutely. Because they aren't really treated... Like, people are given the full depth of humanity across the board. And it was through watching that and, like, having my adult eyes watch something that I had rewatched so much as a child now through a critical lens that had me return to Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed and think more carefully about how they treated Daphne. Because how I had remembered how Daphne was treated in the first one was totally different than the reality of how she was treated. After watching both of them back-to-back, I remember in the
3: first one, they pretty much break up right at the beginning of the movie. There's lots of highs and lows immediately in that film, but then, you know, they're brought back together. But they're not really working as a team throughout the whole movie until, like, the end, where they kind of just serendipitously turn back into a team. But it feels very, like, against everything the gang is meant to be, like, the whole essence of the mystery ink and scooby-doo franchise because i felt a lot watching the second live action one that they're like highlighting everyone has their part on the team and they may not always feel it because that was a big storyline for scooby and shaggy was that they were like they were the screw-ups that's what they kept saying and then velma as in like one of the ending scenes like no you guys are heroes and that's what encourages them to go off and fight that really cements the the theme of like teamwork throughout that movie which i think is well written throughout the movie the the teamwork there i agree but the first movie didn't have that at all now watching it i also rem- i feel like i remembered it differently so going back and watching again as an adult you're like this this isn't the the way i
1: want to remember Scooby-Doo <laughs> <Day." laughs> i agree and i think that it's interesting the way that you point out the word teamwork in particular because i think through all my reflection on scooby-doo i haven't given that much credit i'd focus so intensely on the individual characters
3: it felt like they were really highlighting like everyone's different uh parts on the team and i it's i think that's a constant throughout the the franchise is that they they recognize that everybody has their role um and it may not always be the role they're happy to take but everybody on that team has some sort of a role and i felt like the second movie did a good job of highlighting that and then also highlighting how that equals teamwork for all of them
1: yeah being able to participate fully and commit to their community versus just being angry at each other for reasons that as a viewer aren't given a lot of sense besides that well of course people would be angry with each other if they worked together for so long but i think that that's pretty cynical take versus opening people up to seeing how they can collaborate and really achieve something special. Yeah. I feel like the first Scooby-Doo, and this is reflected based on what little I know of, what the writing process was like, didn't really know what it wanted to be. And like you pointed out with the teamwork being the focus of the second film, it found itself and did it well. And I think that brings me back to the same question, and it's okay if you don't have an answer, but I am curious to know if you see ways in which your taste in Scooby-Doo either connects to or indirectly reflects your current taste in media. Like if you had to pick your favorite show or movie right now, is there any connection to Scooby-Doo? And if not, that's okay. I do think in a lot of the things I watch, I prefer comedy.
3: So that relates too. But I also think about the ways in which the style of the Scooby-Doo movies, this might be a hot take, uh, <laughs> with like the, the action combo humor reflects a lot of the superhero movies we're seeing these days. No, where I not think like, that's a hot
1: take. I think that's reasonable. Yeah.
3: So like I think about the all the Marvel movies I've seen in the past decade and they've been really good about incorporating humor so you're not just watching a bunch of people fight the whole time and I think I noticed that watching these recently that that the the Scooby Doo movies like it's sure it's supposed to be kind of children actiony type thing but the the comedy they have in there and even the jokes they sneak in <laughs> for the adults <laughs> rather than the children viewers are pretty in line with what you'd see in superhero movies right now so I think that's a parallel
1: That makes a lot of sense to me. They're both these popcorn-type movies.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking about how, because these movies were early 2000s, I was thinking about how they were made. I also noticed the special effects in these movies were not anything close to what we would have today, which also (laughs) made me laugh because it wasn't anything I would have noticed as a child. But I I wondered how they filmed these. How do they put Scooby-Doo in this movie? I don't have an answer but i'm sure whatever it is is hilarious i just think about all the scenes that matthew lillard had to do with scooby as his partner but like what was actually there before they added in the special effect he's just acting by himself with an imaginary dog and he just has to go for it like all the crazy stuff they do like there's a scene in the second one where they find all these potions in a fridge and they're trying to <laughs> get back to their normal bodies also something that happens in the first movie but not quite the same anyway they're taking all these potions and you know scooby turns into like the tasmanian devil and then he turns into like a smart professor
1: (laughs) that scene just always makes me laugh when he's like scoob what are you and he looks over and he's just he's just like i'm the tasmanian devil
3: (laughs) It's gold but i was thinking in that scene how matthew lillard had to stand there and do that by himself. <laughs> and we see it with
1: Scooby, but he was by himself. That's a wonderful observation because I don't think until this very moment I ever considered how hard Matthew Lillard would have been working. cuz I just I just believed the magic of Scooby-Doo existing in mm. universe and being there. Another question if this is helpful or not. And okay. I don't know if it's just going to be stirring the pot. Okay. Um if you have a member of the Scooby Gang you identify with like if you had to give yourself an abstract version of a BuzzFeed quiz who do you think you would get
3: It's so hard but I <laughs> I I kind of think Velma Ooh not because I'm genius smart not at all I think I have her social skills the awkwardness and I th- I think she uh she seemed like a big planner. That was a point in the first movie that she was always the one with the plans. Yeah. And then Fred always took all the credit. Yeah. I don't have a Fred in
1: my life per se, <laughs> but
3: I think I probably resonate most with, with Velma.
1: Very nice. Yeah. I Although, love that answer. Oh, yeah.
3: Although I, I, I do like her. I would have to say Scooby's the favorite character. Out of all of them. He's you so
1: charming. You, his, it's it, called Scooby-Doo. Exactly. His voice, I love. <laughs> I just love him talk. <laughs> I think that if I had to pick one thing of all the many things I could trace my media interest back to, like what of Scooby-Doo that is still sustained within me today is that it doesn't matter what it is. If somebody's got a funny voice, it will make me laugh. I love it so much.
3: Yeah, it's good. I think uh, another drawing like, to what I like now the jokes don't have to be, like, super intellectual or super deep. <laughs>
1: yeah. They,
3: they just have to be there. Sometimes it's just nice to
1: laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: And it's a, it's okay to take the easy joke because I feel like a lot of the jokes they put into those live action movies were, were very expected, but still good where they were. Mm-hmm.
1: I one that always comes to mind for me is when Velma throws something at those two little skeleton dudes and their heads knock together like coconuts yes. that's just funny
3: That that ca- that monster I don't even know what it's name is I think it has like it carries a lot of the comic relief for those fight scenes because oh there's mm. a scene where that particular monster is chasing Scooby and Shaggy and they have to go down a hill and they like sled on trash can lids and And, like christmas vacation yeah and uh shaggy goes first so scooby's the one like fighting them as they go down the hill (laughs) and he's like uh he's like running as the the trash can lid isn't like sliding it's rolling and he's like running on top of it while he's fighting them that scene was like it's supposed to be a fight scene but it's just hilarious because it's
1: a dog on a trash can lid fighting these two weird skeletons it's such a good scene it's so completely ridiculous and so sincere in its execution even though it's very funny layers actual tension that these monsters are gonna get scooby and shaggy and you're invited into the anxiety of the chase with them and that scene that always comes to mind well the moment within that scene that always comes to mind for me is when the skeleton with a red eyeball climbs on top of the green eyeballed skeleton (laughs) and using him as a sled like starts to take their arms like cross-country
3: skiing pretty much because there's no snow
1: yes they're like (laughs) cross-country skiing on top of each other with such intensity like narrows his little eye and he hisses a little or something oh yeah very scary yes still gets me as an adult fully swept up into the tension of that scene
3: Aside from the the comedic fight scenes, because I I feel like they always throw something funny into the fight scenes, in the second movie, there's a scene where they go back to the monster's hideout, and when they're getting out of the mystery machine, and the Black Knight ghost is there, and he is prepared to fight all of them, but Fred ushers everybody else to keep going, and he'll he'll distract the knight, he'll fight him, and this is where they joust, Mm -hmm. but this is probably one of the, the least comedic fight scenes, and... Fred gets on a motorcycle and he's got to yeah. joust uh knight on a horse, which the size differences in real life wouldn't make sense, but
1: you're, you're in the movie, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I didn't notice that that was odd until you said it just now. I just always accepted man on motorcycle versus large knight ghost on horse. Totally yeah. reasonable duel. I mean, the whole movie is
3: reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but that's probably like the most like anxiety filled scene. Like it's just very tense and you're like, is Fred going to be okay? Mm-hmm. And I remember that being a point as a child watching the movie where you just, you can't sit down and watch the movie anymore. You have to like stand up and your eyes are glued. Ooh. I just have a very strong connection to that feeling in that particular scene. I remember feel like almost every time I watch it, you're like, ooh, this is a scene. And you've seen it <laughs> multiple times, you know how it ends. But it's just the the build
1: up in that scene is like crazy. <laughs> how much work do you think John Bon Jovi's One a Dead or Alive is doing to cultivate that feeling? Uh, I'd say it carries a lot of it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say you're encountering someone who has never seen either of the live-action Scooby-Doo films or perhaps no Scooby-Doo content. Oh, wow. How would you let them know what it is about Scooby-Doo that is worth their time? I would
3: say specifically in the live-action movies, there is a beautiful combination between what you're seeing and what you're hearing that takes you on a wonderful hysterical roller coaster of emotions that if you're anywhere close to our age feels strongly of nostalgia Mm -hmm. it just is comforting to watch even in the most like highest of anxiety scenes the purest form of nostalgia for my childhood anyone close to our age range would have that same feeling.
1: And you mentioned before we started recording. Do you think that there's any role that music plays into that? Absolutely. I
3: think the music in both of them as early 2000s movies do a great job in capturing the nostalgia that was the early 2000s music. So as you're watching them now, you're reminded of what music was back then and what it sounded like. And I think that plays heavily into the nostalgia because you're hearing music from bands that they still might be around, but their music isn't the same as it was. And what their music contributes to this, what their music contributes to these films is amazing. Just adds so much. Let me blow your mind. You probably might've noticed this. The Frisbee scene is exactly the ending scene. They're throwing (gasps) that piece around like a Frisbee. Oh my God. (laughs) To each other. And scooby's supposed to be able to catch it but in the frisbee scene he runs into the tree and he drops it and then he almost loses it in the fi- in the in, um in the final scene but he ends up saving the day spoiler alert he saves the day
1: Brittany, <laughs> you just broke my brain i'm <laughs> oh, sorry <laughs> watched it as many times as i've watched it and spent as many hours thinking about it it's and a, not yet drawn that
3: connection it's a very specific a very intentional choice in the writing yeah. to pick a a scene where they're throwing oh. a frisbee as the reminiscing scene wow i thought about it as soon as i rewatched it and i saw the frisbee scene i was like this is how the end goes <laughs> and then sure enough i the very end they're throwing that the disc around what yeah. i don't even know what
1: the part's called the control panel the
3: control panel there it is they throw it around like a frisbee and i was like oh what a, a beautiful circle they've drawn here do you have anything
1: else you'd like to add
3: Brittany? not off the top of my head but i'm sure i'll be thinking about scooby-doo for the rest of the week so <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> me too gladly <laughs> Brittany, thank you so much for being here and for sharing that mind-melting revelation about, <laughs> about the ending of Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed, a film I've seen probably literally 78 times. You're welcome. Very happy to. <laughs> I enjoyed this conversation and your company and your insight on the Scooby-Doo live-action films. You're welcome. So happy to be here. This is a
3: great conversation about Scooby-Doo. <laughs> thank you.
1: Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community.
0: Check out the SB blog, past episodes, reach out, leave a comment, send a message, especially for the spotlights. We reach out to friends and people in our various social orbits for episode and spotlight content, but it's so cool when you come to us too. You can find Storytelling Breakdown on Facebook and Instagram. Reach out to our team at info at storytelling-breakdown.com. You can support our team on Patreon. There are new projects in the works, and my goal is to have some of those available on Patreon by the end of April.
2: Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcast by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions.
1: Everyone has a story.
2: These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown.
0: SP Wayne Shout Productions
1: Wayne Shout